Well, I'm, I'm so glad that Rob prayed that I have wisdom about what not to share. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had that prayed for me before. Lord, God, Greg, give him wisdom on what not to share. <laughs> Sometimes I, I give a little too much information. All right. All right. Well, we're, we're open here. Um, I don't know if I've ever worn shorts in October. <sighs> there you go. And I like to wear shorts because my legs are so sexy. Ruth says, that'd be an example of what not to share. <laughs> yeah. It's so obviously not true, it's okay to share it. Um, yeah, so the, it, it, yeah, there's, there's a silver lining to everything. So uh, this is a silver lining to global warming is that our Octobers are getting better. So there, there's that. So I, this was kind of a two-for-one special morning. Uh, I, I had an announcement and a sermon, and the announcement become kind of... Kind of it's kind of became a mini sermon, and so you're going to get two for the price of one. Woo! Um, and both of them are free, so there you go. Bogo. What? Bogo. Bogo. Buy one get one free. Bogo? I don't know. Oh, I, I don't know that acronym. You learn something new every day. So it seems to me that Christians, like people in general, um, we tend to gravitate towards what we might call the wow factor. Uh, things that dazzle us, that impress us, that are big. Uh, and Christians just kind of put a Christian twit, uh, twist on this. So, you know, sometimes Christians are impressed by how big this church is. Wow, he's got 50,000 people going to this church. And, 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 and uh, man, that worship team is just so good. And they top the charts with their song. And, and, and we, we get, are impressed by sermons that can just dazzle crowds. And uh, uh, books that sell millions of copies. And crusades that where thousands of people come to Christ. Wow, God was really in that. Look what God did. And God does sometimes do big things. Parting the Red Sea and whatnot. But the older I get, the more I'm convinced that God is more into the small. In fact, I think the kingdom is intrinsically about small stuff. That's why Jesus says it's like a mustard seed, tiniest of all seeds. It's, it's the little things that really matter the most. Like, we, we make some big decisions in our life, for sure. Uh, you know, you decide whether you're going to be a follower of Jesus. That's a huge decision. You decide whether you are going to be a person who stays single or do you want to get married. And if you want to get married, then are you going to have kids or not? In fact, you can ask that question as you're single. Um, big decisions like that. What, what, what vocation are you going to pursue? Uh, what ministry uh, is God calling you to? Uh, what church are you going to align yourself with? What community are you going to be a part of? What covenant relationships are you going to be entering into? All those are really, really big, important decisions. But the really important stuff happens at a micro level. Uh, it's the decisions we make, the hundreds of decisions we make every day that determines the kind of character we have, regardless of what we do. It's, it's the decisions we make every day, the little tiny things that form our character. And so that, that determines the kind of character we have as we're following Jesus. The kind of character we have as a uh, single person or as a married person, as a parent or a non-parent. The kind of character we have as we're pursuing this vocation or doing this kind of ministry or aligning ourselves with this church or entering into these kind of relationships. It, it's the little decisions we make throughout the day, every day, that forms our character, regardless of what we do. God is in the small. 
God loves the fact that, I, that, that we are committed to learning how to love together. He loves that. And he loves the fact that you are committed to becoming the most loving person you can be. Yay. Yes. Hallelujah. But see, where, where the Spirit is working is not just in giving, getting you to have that commitment, but it's in living it out. And you live it out with every decision you make throughout the day. It's the little things. The Spirit is, is always working in the now. So it's not just we're going to become more loving, but how do we become more loving in this moment, with this person, in this circumstance, in this situation? What's the most loving thing to do in this situation? That's where God is at. He's in the small, the tiny. God's in the small because the small is so important. And so we need to learn how to pay attention to the small. Yeah, be dazzled by the big stuff once in a while. That's fine. But don't be distracted from the small. Every decision that we make, listen to this now, folks. And this is all part of my announcement. <laughs> you wait till I get preaching, man. I'm going to get fiery. But every decision we make, that affects other people, or that affects animals, or that affects the planet, is important to God because God loves all of it. Uh, every decision we make that affects other people or animals or the earth, uh, it's, a, it's a moral decision precisely because it affects others. And so it's a decision that we make <laughs> to some degree in love or not in love. Which brings me to my announcement. Uh, we have a, a creation care board now. Uh, a community board where people can get on and give suggestions about, you know, ways that we can better love the earth and the animal kingdom. And it's divided into four categories. And we're just learning how to, to, to make little sacrifices for the good of the earth and the animal kingdom. That's part of our call. We're learning how to love the earth and the animal kingdom together. And so people have suggestions there. We just put it up a week ago, but already there are suggestions there about how to cut down on the use of plastics and how to have a, a lower, you know, leave a, a, a less of a carbon imprint and, and how to have less waste, uh, how, how, to, how to reuse paper bags and all sorts of interesting stuff like that. And it may seem kind of trivial. Why are we studying about how to... How to avoid plastics. And, I mean, shouldn't we be having a crusade that could save thousands of people? That would be much more important, wouldn't it? Well, crusades are fine, but I submit to you that this is a big, big deal. It's a big deal. It may look small, but it is huge. See, we're all called to love the earth and the animal kingdom. That's what this kind of mini-series that, that I've been in is all about. It's our first mandate, our most fundamental call. But what does it mean to love something unless you're interested in how your decisions impact the other for better or for worse? What it means to love another is that you care about how your decisions impact the other. If I tell you that I love a brother or sister in Christ, but I have no concern whatsoever for how my actions, how my decisions throughout the day maybe affect them positively or negatively, well, then I'm a liar. I don't love them. To love someone or to love something is to care about its well-being. You want to see it flourish. That's what it is. And so if we love the earth and the animal kingdom, we've got to be interested in how our everyday decisions, the little tiny stuff, impacts the earth and the animal kingdom. And so many of our decisions that we make throughout the day do. So many of the decisions we make throughout the day have a negative impact on the earth and the animal kingdom. And we need to know about that. Because we're called to love the earth and the animal kingdom and to care about the flourishing of the earth and the animal kingdom. And this is all the more important, folks, because 
while I maybe make a joke about global warming a little bit ago, it's a really, it's really, it's really serious business. We talked about this about a month ago here in the, in the church. Uh, we have, as a species, failed miserably at carrying out our first mandate, and now it's coming back to bite us. We're beginning to suffer the consequences of that. And we're, we're seeing extreme weather increasing, and they say it's almost all climatologists agree with this, that in all probability, it's only going to get more intense. These weather events are getting more intense, and they'll be more frequent. Things are going, to, are going to get worse and worse at a faster and faster rate. And we're in serious trouble here. And if some hold out hope for technology to turn this around, and that might happen. But as I shared several weeks ago, the, the greatest hope is that as we see these things getting worse and as it's intensifying, people will begin to wake up to what's going on. And already we're seeing a movement of people who are just saying, we have to voluntarily stop doing what we were doing that got us into this trouble. And so there's movements of people, different groups that are, are saying we have to voluntarily re restrain ourselves and, and cut back and start paying attention to the little things that we do that are harming the earth and the animal kingdom and avoiding that and learning how to get by with less and, and opting out of this always got to have the best and the new and the improved and all that consumption because that's what drives the whole fossil fuel industry. And see, I believe that that is where the Spirit of God is, and that's where the church ought to be in that movement. In fact, my conviction is that the, the church ought to be leading that movement because this is what we should have been doing all the time. We, we don't love the earth and animal kingdom just because now we're in trouble and we want to avoid catastrophe. We do it because it's our first mandate. But now it also is the case that we do it to avoid this catastrophe, and the church ought to be leading this. Hallelujah. And so this is a big deal. I, I encourage us all to get on board with this, this journey that we're on, learning how to love the earth and the animal kingdom. We just, I mean, we've talked about that before in the past here, but we've never like made this a focal point of what we're about, but it is. It's one of the four loves. We're called to love God, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and to love the earth and the animal kingdom. Let's together learn how to do this. And, and so I encourage you to check out this board and, and offer things that you found that are, that, that are helpful and, uh, and learn from, 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 from others. Um, it is our first mandate, and it is a big deal. End of announcement. There you go. All right. I want to, uh, this has been my last sermon on trusting God as judge, and uh, I want to look at one other aspect of, of the final judgment that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, I'll, I'll base this on 1 Corinthians 3, a passage I've read several times, but it's just so important for the whole, uh, the whole discussion of, of how God judges. So Paul says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Pause for a moment here. Now, we, we talked last week about that foundation being laid. And it's it's the, the cross and Christ's resurrection, which changes everything for everyone. As all died in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And so it shifts everyone. If you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go back and, and check that out. So this is a foundation that applies to everybody. Paul right here is talking specifically about Christian ministry, but, but the, the point he's making applies, I think, universally, because God's not willing that any should perish, but wants all to come to repentance. And this refining process that he's talking about is something that we all have to go through. So no one can lay any other foundation than, other than the one that's been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, see, now note here, here, here's our part. Everything's changed because of Christ. That's what God has already done for us. But now there's a role that we play. He says, uh, and, and that role is building on that foundation. 
If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it. The day is Paul's phrase. In fact, you find this throughout the whole Bible. The day referring to the final judgment, final judgment day. And it's not a day literally like a 24-hour period. Uh, the, the word day is, as in English, in Hebrew, and in, in Greek, it, it can mean any kind of period of time. Uh, we, we say, like, back in my day, you should have seen me when I was a runner. Back in my day. And we mean not I had a 24-hour period in the past where I could run, but for a season of life, I could run. So this is the judgment day, or judgment epoch, judgment season, however you want to refer to it. But the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the, the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. The gold, silver, precious stones, they survive the fire. But if the work is burned, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. It's a phrase that means you, you get up at the skin of your teeth kind of thing. Yeah, you, you got out, uh, but everything else got lost. So the day will disclose it. You find this in a number of passages. We don't have time to look at them all, but uh, the, the idea is that the, the, the final judgment is a day of revelation, a day of disclosure, a day where, where the question of what is real and what is true gets answered. Um, in fact, the word apocalypse, we associate apocalypse with all sorts of you know, disasters and things like that, and that's appropriate because the New Testament does. But the word itself actually means revelation. Revelation, disclosure. When the apocalypse happens, it brings forth truth. And so you have these refrains throughout the New Testament that what is hidden will be brought to light, and what is secret will be made known. And the final judgment's the time when all facades, all of our, 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 our false selves that we project out there will be burned away. All hypocrisy will be burned away. All disillusionment will be burned away. All misconceptions will be burned away. We will have the truth. Everything other than truth will be burned away. And so it gets revealed. The final judgment answers the question, what is real? And what is ultimately real is God, whose character is pure, other-oriented love, and everything in creation that's consistent with that other-oriented love. In the end, that is all that will exist. That's all that's real. God's love is the one thing that's eternal. And then what is, is consistent with it gets eternalized by, by being related to it. That's what ultimately is, is going to be real. Everything else will be exposed for being the unreality that it is. And that's how all sin will be done away with. At the root of all sin is an unreality. You see this right in the Genesis narrative with Eve. Uh, you know, God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to die. The serpent comes along and says, oh, he's lying. Actually, that's the best thing you could do is to eat from that tree. Well, Eve begins to imagine that. And as she imagines, it, it imagines that, the tree begins to look good. And she's, she's drawn to it. She's entered into a false reality. But she's going to now live in that false reality. That's the nature of all sin. Whenever we sin, we have to pretend that God doesn't exist. We go into a false reality. And on the judgment day, all false realities will be done away with. Uh, so Paul uses this imagery of being burned up. We come into the presence of God's love, and that love will function like a fire. And that fire, God's love... Will, will refine us and perfect us insofar as we're compatible with that love. And, and, and that will reveal that the life that we've built on the foundation is gold, silver, or precious stone, stuff that survives the fire and is purified by the fire. But that same love will also reveal 
to what degree our life has been made of wood, hay, or, or straw. Stuff that doesn't survive the fire of God's love because it's not consistent with God's love. And so the process of refining and the process of perfecting and the process of purging is also the process of revealing. It discloses what is real. What have we done with our life? And all of it is directed by God's other-oriented love. It's for our benefit. Lock that in. The final judgment is for our benefit. I don't think most people see it that way. But if, if, if God's love, everything God does is other-oriented love, because that's his essence, and so, of course, the final judgment has got to be motivated by other-oriented love. And so God, in his love for you, wants you to flourish, so his love will purify and perfect everything about you that can be purified and perfected. But that same love is going to burn away everything about us that can't be perfected, everything that's inconsistent with God's love. Because if God didn't free us from that, we couldn't enter into the kingdom. Because nothing other than love can be present in the kingdom of God. It's got to be burned away. It's for our benefit that God does that. But we do suffer loss then if we've been building on wood, hay, or stubble. So since nothing contrary to, to love can enter into the kingdom, our character, our character has got to be made perfectly compatible with the character of Jesus Christ before we enter into the kingdom. Uh, you, you can get a glimpse of this in Revelation 19 when it says that the bride, which is the corporate bride of Christ, uh, the church universal, um, that, that uh, she has had to make herself ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And she did that by adorning herself with fine linen. And that fine linen, John says, is, is the works of righteousness of the saints, the right relatedness of the saints. And part of what John's getting at there is this. It's when the bride is finally kind of caught up to the groom in terms of character. When the bride now has the kind of character that's compatible with the bridegroom. Uh, now we finally have a bride who's fit for the bridegroom. And this wedding supper can take place. But it only happens when, when the character of the saints, the character of the bride, is decked out the way Jesus is decked out. And his righteousness is now reflected in our righteousness. Um, that's got to happen before we enter the kingdom. Now, I will confess to you that I, at my current pace, I'm not sure I'm going to be perfected by the time I die. It wasn't a joke. <laughs> no, that was. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm way ahead of you guys, but I, even, even I. I mean, <laughs> Hey, even the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, he, he's, he, has, he says, not that I've attained it. He hasn't attained it yet. And he's towards the end of his life. So I don't feel so bad about not attaining it. But that raises this question. If, if we have to be perfected in love before we can enter into the eternal kingdom, and we're not perfected when we die, well, then when do, when do we get perfected? And basically, you've got two options here. Option one, um, you can say God will magically transform us. Uh, he, he perfects us, just boom. He just decrees it, and, and we're perfected. Um, and option number two is that, no, it's, it's it, the process that we started here in this, world, this life of, of, of growing in Christ, that continues, until, uh, that continues after death until it's completed. Option one is what a lot of folks have, have, have believed. Uh, most Protestants have believed this. And we would certainly wish that this was true, you know. But see, here's the thing. If God magically perfects us, after we die, then, uh, well, for one thing, there'll be no need for this purging thing to go on. God just snaps his finger and, and we're done. Why have this fire that has to purify and burn away or whatever? Uh, if, if, if God is into, I could call it coercive conformity, he just imposes on us this, 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 this uh, loving character. Well, if God does that, then it's not our character. 
My character is my character because it was my decisions that formed it. But if a character is imposed on me without a decision-making process, well, then it's not my character at all. And if God was into coerced conformity, um, well, then why didn't he create us righteous in the first place? If he's able to do that, why go through this whole process? And if God can just impose righteousness on us, well, then why bother with the whole arduous task of discipleship and sanctification and trying to live in, in, in Christ-likeness? Why bother with that? If it's going to be perfected later on, well, then I'll just kind of coast here and, and, and I'll just wait for the, the free deal. Um, and, and this explains why, I think, uh, in, in this one Barna uh, research study that I had read, this is probably 20 years ago, but I don't think it's gotten any better since, that of those who profess to be Christians in this poll, among those, almost 75%, for 75% of them, their faith made very, very little difference in their behavior. Had very little impact on their life. Their values were basically the values of, 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 of non-Christians. They just went to church more and a few other things. But see, that's what you get when... when if you think that growing in Christ, what we call sanctification, if you think that's optional, well, then we in our carnal nature will opt out. Uh, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. Um, it's just easier that way. So option one, I don't think is a, a real good uh, option, and I don't think it's biblical. Option number two is that there's a process. The process of growing in Christ-likeness continues after death and between now and, and, and the kingdom. Uh, that's what goes on. And there's all these teachings, as I mentioned several weeks ago, these teachings in the New Testament that suggest that processes that are not completed in this life get completed on the other side prior to entering into the kingdom. And so, for example, you read this, and Jesus says this in Matthew 5. It says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to the court with him, or else your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison and truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Um, you do get out. He's not talking about hell here. Uh, uh, you do get out, but not until you paid the last penny. And, the, and the, the, the connotation there is that get reconciled now because it's going to get harder later on. You put this off and it's just going to get harder later on. That fire of God's love is going to have to burn it away. But it's better for you to do it now than to have, it done, have to have it done later on. And we know that just in our life here. The longer you persist in any kind of behavior or any kind of attitude, the harder it is to ever get out of that attitude. You know what I'm talking about? Our choices become our habits. Our habit becomes our character. And that becomes really hard to change. Our character becomes our destiny. Do it now. Now is the time to change. Now is the time. Because you don't know if you'll have the capacity later on. It's going to be harder later on. This is what I think 1 Corinthians 3 is all about. It's talking about this process. The process of being refined in the light of God's love. God is working with us to get us fit for the kingdom. That's what the final judgment's all about. He's got to dress the bride upright so that she's fit to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb with the, the all-holy Son of God. It's what God is doing with us now. Even right now, the Spirit is always influencing us to go in a Christ-like direction. The Spirit's always influencing us, trying to get our attention, to make decisions that are more loving, uh, to, to burn away all our self-centeredness and our selfishness and our greed, to burn away our pettiness and our, our hatred and our negative attitudes, drawing us in a more Christ-like direction. We don't always yield to the Spirit, do we? Somebody say amen. We don't always do, but the Spirit's always working to pull us in that direction. And... Uh, 
what 1 Corinthians 3 is teaching us, and there's other passages that do the same, is that that process doesn't all of a sudden become a magic thing later on. No, it continues until it's complete. Paul says that he that began a good work in you will see it through to the end until it's completion. That work is going to continue on. Um, it's not necessarily pleasant. Fire, Paul used that, that imagery of fire, and while it's, of course, not literal, it, 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 I don't think he means that, oh, it'll be a warm, fuzzy experience. Things get burned away, especially to the degree that we have wood, hay, or straw uh, as part of our, our life. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant now, and it won't be pleasant then. I mean, it's hard to die to self-centeredness. It's hard to, to be practicing the spiritual disciplines. It's hard to stay faithful in prayer. Can I get somebody to say amen? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a, the one loser Christian in the crowd. But I find it difficult to, to you know, always be other-oriented in my love and to remember to be blessing people at all times and to, and, and to put off that anger and instead bless that enemy. It, it, that's hard work. But it's not as hard as it will be later on. So do it now because it's only going to get harder. Uh, God's love will never give up, and you'll keep on trying to burn that away, but it's much better for us to do it voluntarily now. The fire is not necessarily pleasant, but it's all motivated by God's love, and it's all good for us, and it's all necessary. And because we're talking about our character, which is formed by our decisions, this process has got to involve our participation. I don't think this is just something that God does for us, because that'd be another form of coercive conformity. No, it requires our participation. And that's why I, I, I believe, and this isn't doctrine or anything, but it seems to me that the, 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 just as it is true now, so it will be true later on, that the duration of this experience, how long it takes, and the intensity of the experience will depend somewhat on our, how, how, how pliable we are, how willing we are. That's true now. It will be true later on. And so I don't think this is necessarily one size fits all. Uh, it, it, we, we could all go through different uh, durations of experience uh, in the process of making our way to the kingdom. Because it's our character, it's got to involve our participation. So the example I used several weeks ago, you know, once you die, all time is relative, right? Because we don't have any shared medium. All time is predicated on a shared medium. Never mind about that. But so Paul and I, Eddie and I are, in a, are driving some, to a conference, and we get in a car wreck, and we both get killed. And I go through two weeks of this burning process to get ready for, for the, the bride, and I show up at the pearly gates, ready to enter the heavenly city. And there's Paul. We get there at the same time. But I say, man, that was a tough two weeks, uh, you know, but God's love it really just made a saint out of me. And, and, and Paul goes, two weeks? I've been down there for two years going through this. Because uh, he's got a whole lot more to burn away than I do, obviously, you know, so I'm just saying, it's just saying. I love you, Paul. He's my covenant bro. See, if all that's contrary to the love of God has got to be burned away in the final judgment, it's better to have it burned away now. And if, 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 if all sin has got to be done away with, it's, it's better to get rid of the sin now. This is why the New Testament has, such an, it has a sense of urgency when it says, put away all immorality. Put away your selfishness. Put away your sin. Die to that stuff. Uh, don't be the center of your own universe. There's an urgency to the New Testament's call to sanctification, to right, to right relatedness. It's because only by getting rid of it now, if you get rid of it now, it doesn't have to be burned away in the final judgment. And if all lies are going to be burned away in the final judgment, because the final judgment is the day of truth, the day of revelation, everything will be made known. If that's the case, it's far better to burn away all deception and lies from our life now. If everything's going to be brought to light in the final judgment, it's better to bring it to light now. 
If everything is going to be about truth, then this is the time for us to commit to living in the truth. It says this in Ephesians 4. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is the head. We grow in him. We grow in him as we speak the truth to one another. That word truth in Greek, aletheia, it means uncovered or unveiled. So Paul's really just saying, be real with one another. Don't be hiding from one another. One of the impulses we have as a result of the fall, and this also you see in Genesis 3, uh, is that we want to hide. We have the shame. First thing Adam and Eve do after they fall is they, they hide. They hide from God. They hide from one another. They got to cover themselves up. Paul is saying, be real to one another, and that's how we grow. By speaking the truth, by being honest, by being real, we grow into Christ our head. We grow in our conformity to, to Jesus Christ. It's what John means when he says in 1 John, walk in the light as he is in the light. He's not saying be shiny the way Christ is shiny. Rather, when you turn on the light, you just see what is there. To walk in the light means you walk with the lights on. You see what is there. You're real. There's no duplicity. There's no darkness. There's no hypocrisy. I personally never realized how much I deceive myself, how much I varnish the truth with others, and how much I hide from God. I never realized that until I made a commitment to living in the truth. And this only started like six weeks ago as I was you know, looking at the final judgment stuff and realizing it's a day of disclosure. It's like, whoa, if, if it's all going to be real then, I better start getting real now. And so I just commit. I, it's an aspirational thing. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect yet. But I didn't even realize, and I think most, most of us don't realize, how much fabrication goes on. How we, we, we doctor things up to make ourselves look a little better, even to ourselves. And even before God. I, I know that God knows every little detail about me, and yet, why is it so hard to just get real with that and confess that? Uh, I, I think we get so good at lying to ourselves that, and maybe lying to others that we don't even realize that we're doing it anymore. And the only way we're ever going to wake up to that is if we make a commitment to speaking the truth, to thinking the truth, to living the truth, to telling the truth, to confessing the truth. I encourage all of us to embrace that commitment. Uh, and, and, and as you do, you'll realize you'll catch yourself. you start catching yourself. I was kind of exaggerating there. Uh, that wasn't quite true. And, and, and all, you'll just start to discover all this stuff. And it's a way of getting set free. To speak the truth, to be real to one another, it means we confess our sin, which the New Testament tells us to do. Confess your sins to one another. James chapter 5. If I'm real with you, I, then the sin is what you're going to see because sin's part of my reality. And I've even done that here this morning telling you that I've, I have not yet arrived. Um, confess sin to one another. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to air our dirty laundry in front of everybody. Only if you're a preacher can you get to do that. No. Uh, even preachers shouldn't do that. And, and actually, Rob had a good point. There is, there's things that shouldn't be shared with everybody. Um, but we all need, we all need some context, some relationships where we can confess sin, where we can speak the absolute truth to one another, whether it's one person or two people or three people or, 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 or a group. Some 
context where you can be the absolute real you, and you know they're not going to shun you or judge you or look down on you. Uh, this is a group that's predicated on other-oriented love. We're here to help one another speak the truth. We're here to help one another become the radiant bride of Christ without spot or wrinkle. And, and, and so that's what frees us to be able to be truthful. We know that we don't get points little reward points for having it together, and we get no points detracted for not having it together because the foundation has been laid and the foundation is Jesus Christ. And, and we know that, that we already know the best and the worst about one another. I know that, that you were a sinner to such a degree that Jesus Christ had to die for you. You must have been in a really serious shape. I don't know what variety of sin that you had. It doesn't matter, but it was serious. What a sinner you are. But I also know that God loves you with an unsurpassable love anyways, and he ascribes to you unsurpassable worth, just as he does to me. So I know the best about you, and I know the worst about you. What could you possibly gain, or what could you possibly lose by telling me the truth? What could I lose by telling you the truth? Nothing. In fact, there's only gain in confessing sin. We all need context like that when we confess our sin. See, when we confess our sin, it's no longer secret. When you confess it, you bring it out here. It's no longer in the darkness. So when you confess it, you, you, it's, it's, it disempowers the sin that you're talking about. The power of sin is the secrecy and the shame, and that's where the enemy works. That's why Paul says that when you're angry, don't sin. Don't go to bed with your anger, because then you give the devil a foothold. When you don't deal with that reality, something made you angry, and, and it ticked you off, but, but you just stuff it, because that's what Christians do. We don't get angry. We smile, especially in Minnesota. And we, oh, uh, but see, when you do that, now it becomes, now, now it's inside. In fact, Paul says, be angry. He uses the word orge, which means hot. And he says, but don't let the sun go down on your, he uses a different word, para orge, which means uh, down under, orge down under, anger, heat down under, submerged heat. How's that? Because when you have submerged heat or submerged lust or submerged lying, or submerged selfishness, or submerged violence, anything that you're stuffing, you give the devil a foothold. That's why he's called the prince of darkness. He needs darkness to operate. That's why the Bible tells us that those who dwell in sin hate the light. It requires the darkness. Confession gets that out. It turns the light on something, and now you can begin the process of getting freed from that. We all need context in which we can be confessing. When you confess... The person or the persons that you're confessing to uh, can remind you that you're forgiven. And we need that, ta- that tangible reminder. We can know that all is forgiven in Christ, but to hear it from other people makes it more tangible, more concrete, more experiential, and therefore more transformative. We need people to be set for, to help set us free. Uh, we were never intended to live out this Christian life on our own. It, it just doesn't work that way. We need one another. When you confess your sin, now there's a, there's, not only are you bringing it out and bringing it into light, and disempowering it, but now you have friends who can help you stay free from that. Accountability. We all need that. That's how we grow in Christ. That's how we get free of all the stuff that's contrary to love. That's how we prepare ourselves for the coming kingdom. And we do it now so we don't have to do it later on. If you want to get free from something that's got you in bondage, invite someone in on your life. Or join a support group. Uh, invite someone in on that. You want to get free of that porn? Well, invite other folks who maybe have also struggled with that uh, in on that so that they can ask you, how's that going? 
And you know that throughout the week, and that's one more motivation to not fall back into that. Or it could be substance abuse, or it could be just that nasty habit of yours, or it could be that you're, you're, you're not considered enough to your spouse, or it could be that you're not you know, paying enough attention to that son of yours, or whatever it is, invite someone else in on it to say, how's it going? So you can constantly be bringing it in the light, constantly disempowering it, and constantly moving in the direction of growing in Christ as head. It's only by speaking the truth, by being real, that we grow into Christ as head. And we do it now so we don't have to grow into Christ as head later on because it'll be harder later on. Final thing I'll say is, is just this. Everything I just said about being truthful with other people, it applies to our relationship with God. In fact, in some ways, that's even more foundational. Getting real with God, it's so absolutely, absolutely vital to be utterly honest with God to the point where you know, if you've got something in your life that you know shouldn't be there and you know God doesn't want it there, but you don't want to give it up, well, instead of avoiding that topic as you pray for missionaries or something, no, I mean, pray for missionaries, wonderful, but be real with God. He already knows it anyway. Say, God, I don't want to give that up. <laughs> I'm not ready to yet. Keep the conversation going. God values honesty above all else. In the book of Job, we don't have time to, to look at it right now, do we? Is that, no, we don't have time to look at it. We definitely don't have time to look at it. But, you know, Job it gets caught up in this heavenly wager. Satan was attacking the character of God, accusing God of being a Machiavellian, manipulative creator. People only worship, worship you because of the benefits. Um, and, 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 and so it, it, it gets put to the test. Job has everything taken away from him to see if he's going to continue to worship God. God's character is on the line throughout the book of Job. And, and Job is the one who's supposed to vindicate God's character, to prove that God is not a Machiavellian manipulative, Machiavellian manipulative deity. Um, and so he goes through all this stuff. Now, it, throughout the book of Job, Job starts off righteous enough. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, that's a perspective that both he and his friends share. God is doing all this stuff. Oddly enough, Job and his friends both think that God is a, manip a manipulative deity. Uh, and the book of Job is meant to expose that as being false. But Job, he starts off by sounding righteous. But as the book goes on, he gets, as, as the pain of a situation wears on him, he gets more and more nasty. And he, he says some nasty things about God. God, you, you, you toy with me like a lion does its prey. Uh, you, you fashion designs against me. God is a judge who, who blinds judges so they don't judge right. That's what Job says. And then the, the innocent get thrown out in the street and, and they pray, but God doesn't hear their prayers. That's what Job says. He even calls uh, God his adversary at one point, basically saying, God, you are Satan to me. Not very complimentary. Could argue that that's blasphemous. And you find that throughout the book of Job. Um, when, and Job's friends, of course, are all, we have full of little Christian cliches. Oh, you got it. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Open your eyes, buddy. Uh, it's because they think that Job deserves this. When God shows up, he says in chapter 42, uh, uh, he says to Eliphaz, I am mad at you and your other buddies because you didn't speak about me what is right the way Job did. Now, God had confronted Job about everything he said in, in, in chapters 39 and 40 and 41. And Job had just repented of everything he said. Uh, he says, I, I, I repent of my ignorance and all the things that I've said. He, he, he puts on sackcloth and ashes. He's so serious about this. And yet God, God says, you didn't speak about me what was right the way Job did. Now, the word there, he can't, the word there is, is, is kun. 
And it literally means to align with, to align with. And there's two ways that you can align with truth. One, you can be speaking what is objectively true, but that can't be the case here because God has just told him that what he said was wrong, and he just confessed that what he said was wrong. And you read the book of Job, and you can see that what he said was wrong. So it can't mean he spoke about me accurately, but the other way it can mean is that he spoke, he spoke honestly. He aligned with his heart. He said it straight. Yeah, he maybe came close to blasphemy, but at least I got the real Job. I didn't get that from you guys. Like he says, you guys were speaking out of your fear. Job spoke straight from the heart. And that's what vindicates the character of God. This person who just rails against God, he vindicates the character of God because it shows that God loves him for his honesty. He's not a manipulative deity. He can take what humans dish out and he still loves them. And that is its own kind of form of faith. Keep the line of communication open with God. I don't care how far away from God you are right now. Maybe you're hearing this and, and, and you just gave up on God a long time ago or you want the world's classic sin binge the last three months. I don't know what you've done. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. Keep the line of communication open with God. Be honest with him. Talk to him. Because that's, you're giving him a chance, A, to show that he loves you even though you're in this state. And that's the thing that will begin to turn you around and he can, you, you're giving God a chance to draw you back. Draw you back. He loves, values honesty above all. The day of honesty, the day of truth is coming, you guys. It's the final judgment. Everything will be revealed. Best to do it now. Uh, speak the truth to God. Speak the truth to one another. And speak the truth to yourself. Nothing but the truth. And do it all in love. And that's how we grow up into Jesus Christ as head. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Glory. Glory. All right. Um, we have uh, Tuesdays, don't forget, we have the newscast, which talks about the sermon. You can go a little deeper with it. Uh, it's a very insightful time. Uh, and then we have gathering groups. I keep on hearing great things about our gathering groups. I encourage folks to check those out. I meet other people, discuss this stuff. Um, and I encourage all of us to be, if you don't have it already, in fact, here's a resource I'll let you know about. Um, Wes Hills wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship. And Spiritual Friendship is, we've talked about this before. We'll be having a class on this uh, this winter, so you can keep an eye open for that. But it's just about friendships where you are helping one another grow in Christ. That's all it is. And, and uh, if you don't have a, a person or a group that you are doing that with, I encourage you to check this out and keep your eyes open and pray about that. That God will lead you to a person who you can begin to walk this out together because we were never meant to do it alone. Uh, if you're going to be here next week and you have kiddos, let us know so that we can uh, make sure we have enough children's workers. And I believe we still are in need of some children's workers back there. If you're looking for a ministry to get involved in and meet people, that'd be a good place to go. Let us know about that. And finally, if you are in need of prayer, um, uh, if you're in the auditorium here, we have prayer uh, folks up front. And if you're... Uh, I'm just going to say if you're outhouse, if you're not in the house... Um, uh, you're watching online, uh, well, you can see there, there's ways of getting online and, and praying with people that way. You guys, I love you guys. I'm so honored to be a part of this journey that we're in. I feel really good about where we're at in this journey. We've got a ways to go, for sure. We're not, we have not yet attained it, but at least we're going in the right direction. Praise God for that. Uh, love you guys. Go out and love on the world. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the earth in the animal kingdom and express it in the, the hundreds of little decisions that you make throughout every day. God bless you guys. See you next week.